This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Wan in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined by Mawira Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawira. Kia ora, Sam. How are you today? Very good. Very good indeed. Who are you introducing today? Today, it is my pleasure to introduce someone who has been a great mentor to me um, over the last few years. I've um, spent a bit of time sitting in classrooms with him, a lot of times talking talking to him online and learning so much from him. Professor Jens Mueller from Massey University um, and many other universities around the world. Uh, so welcome, Jens. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So how was your bubble life? It was better than a normal life because I usually travel internationally quite a bit and that obviously didn't work. So after we came up with ways to work around absences in other countries, the uh, ability to connect through Zoom and other mechanisms worked extremely well. And so if I look back at the many hours of travel that I save, then I've become much more productive and effective and efficient in working without travel, although it does, of course, diminish the ability to connect personally. But uh, for me, my timesheets show that uh, my efficiency during lockdown has vastly increased compared to before. Do you think that we'll go back to traveling as soon as we're allowed or will this will this stick for a while? Well, there's a reason why you travel internationally, and that is that you maintain relationships with people, and that is hard to do in uh, in an electronic form, especially in Asia, where I mainly travel, because there the personal connection means a lot. So it will go back to travel, but it might well be that for some of the travel that isn't really necessary, we have now come up with something that is generally accepted as an alternative. It's interesting how I mean, this this technology has been around for a while. It's not just that the technology is suddenly mature that we can do it, but that somehow this has prompted us to, to get over some of those barriers, perhaps. Yeah, I was quite astonished that many universities were struggling with moving from a face-to-face delivery model into an online delivery model at Massive. We have used online for a thousand years. So this was a seamless transition. We essentially in the early part of the first semester in March decided we're going to go fully online and we didn't miss a beat. We didn't miss a class. We didn't miss a week's work. So it just immediately moved onto Facebook, onto WeChat, onto WhatsApp, onto Zoom. And 
it worked extremely well. We have a somewhat unique situation that we are the largest university in New Zealand, so we have a large number of international students, and many of those were not able to come to New Zealand for a number of reasons, initially the lockdown in China and then the closure of borders. So we had a number of students who, for whatever reasons of connectivity and political permissions, weren't able to use Facebook, which is our main platform, and we then transitioned them over to WeChat, which worked extremely well. So we are now fluent in WeChat as well, and it worked absolutely beautiful for the new semester that's coming up in two weeks. We have a format where all the lectures are presented online because large groups still can't separate properly, and although there's no mandate to do that, the students prefer that. And all of the smaller group tutorials are done face-to-face, -face. so we have a blended model now that works well, and we still have in a group that I will work with uh, coming up about 25 students uh, in China and overseas who can come in. And for those, we offer a full online model, including very small group, intense interaction, video chats, so that they actually get probably better tuition than if they were in a big classroom with 100 people. So it's just kind of rolling with the punches and coming up with new tricks. But to answer your question, less than 10,000 words, I think we will go back to travel for some purposes because it does make good sense to see the whites of the eyes and to shake hands and to be with people. It sounds like your teaching was already not just lectures. The, the fact that you say you moved your teaching to Facebook suggests that a lot of your teaching is much more about those connections than just the pure content delivery in a lecture style. Oh, we don't do lecture style at all at Massey. We are very practice-oriented teaching facilities, so we prepare people for jobs. And if you're looking for a job, then you don't learn very much that makes you employable by listening to somebody and writing down wise words from 18 years ago. So uh, our teaching is very interactive. Uh, we have pretty much in the business school, everyone who teaches responsibly in a large group has corporate experience. I've done 30 years of large corporate work, CEO and chair of billion-dollar firms. So the idea is that we had from day one essentially a very practical model that lends itself to smaller groups to interaction over various media. The only thing that we had to adapt for was really working with an outlier group that technically couldn't reach Facebook, couldn't reach WhatsApp, could only do WeChat in the hinterlands of China with four hours of time difference. And that took about 20 minutes to fix. So this is not a big trick. And I have good contacts with people that are working at universities in the UK and in Canada and in Germany, and they're still struggling with getting their material online. Now, we have a school that at Massey has a real problem, and that is our pilot school. We are the largest flying school in the Southern Hemisphere, and you will appreciate that learning to fly on the internet is not quite the same thing as stalling out a plane at 5,000 feet and having to recover in person. So we have some delivery that is a problem. As you know, we are the only veterinary school in New Zealand, and therefore we have some deliveries that you just can't do effectively online. But even there, the engineers have come up with ways to simulate things that they would otherwise do in a lab, and we are constantly adapting. But in a business school, we don't have labs, we don't have frogs to dissect, and we don't really need to do things that blow stuff up. So we uh, are pretty easy to deliver online. I'm going to take the opportunity to play Jin Wigmore's Black Sheep. Good on you. Good guess.
teaching internationally are your students a, a big melting pot of people from all over asia coming together yeah in total i probably have 85 percent of international students and 15 percent of domestic students so as it how's it working in terms of people's varying degrees of of lockdown and state of the state of the virus are they spending time just trying to figure out where everybody's up to? Well, it's a huge challenge, especially in India right now, where the lockdown is still active or has been increased in some areas. China is pretty much domestically back to normal. Uh, India is a problem. Most of the other countries are allowing free movement to the point that people can go out and buy an internet and get a battery charger and things they need. The, uh, the key area that is still quite complex right now is India, because in some states, especially in the South, you have a increased lockdown regime now because the numbers aren't falling. So there is still drama. But about three weeks ago, they opened up the beer stores in Bangalore, and that certainly helped. So people at least have beer again, and that seemed to have made a huge difference. So what is it that you are teaching? Uh, I mainly do global corporate strategy, sustainability, and governance. Cool. So what are the implications of a pandemic for, for those areas? No, it's, it's an immediate impact on strategy. We expect that boards come together and use their collective wisdom, intelligence, and whatever information they can get to redirect a company to perform under different circumstances. That does not work easily for all. If you own a hotel, then you own a hotel, and that's a patch of dirt with lots of buildings on it, and there's not much you can do about it. But we have many businesses that can pivot quite easily. Uh, I used as an example, yesterday we have a right close to me here, a fairly big restaurant at Tauranga, and uh, they, during the lockdown, switched to take out and preparing pre-cooked meals, uh, essentially competing with the food back people and so forth. And they didn't quite make money, but they covered their costs and stayed in business. So there are ways that you can pivot around. And clearly, those businesses that in the past did not have a good online presence or felt that they couldn't really have an online presence are now being challenged to join the online revolution, it will hurt 
some businesses, especially those that are smaller family-driven firms where the knowledge is institutional and quite aged, they stayed in business because granddad started the engineering shop and everybody in town knows him. And therefore you go and get your camper van repaired there and that gives enough business. But on a global scale, competing with firms that are more modern in their way they present themselves, uh, they will struggle. So this will absolutely kill some businesses off for good that will not recover. It will allow other firms to come up with new and alternative business models that will probably be improving them into the future. It's a stimulant to have to do something different. And some firms will just keep on going. We at a university level are expecting to just keep on going. Our numbers are up and we deliver good value, but it's a, it's a wrinkle that you deliver slightly different in some courses. And what the pilot people will do, I don't know yet, but uh, we're expecting that the borders will reopen for international students with some sort of managed quarantine situation into the first semester of next year. It makes no sense to push anything through later this year, because by the time that was operational, you would already be through at the end of the second semester. So it makes no, no sense to force people to come back in early. But if we have universities that have dorm facilities, for instance, Massey has over a thousand dorm rooms that could easily be a locked up managed quarantine facility with very little effort. We have cafeterias going, we can do the food and uh, we could easily control the exit. So we could very easily have people come back that are then segregated in managed quarantine or coming early in next year so that by mid late February, when the semester starts, they are in place. The online teaching is not quite acceptable in some countries. In China, by law, it is not acceptable. China does not allow online delivery for degrees. That means that those degrees wouldn't be valid in China. So that's issue number one. And in India, for instance, the perception is that if you do something online, that this is a crappy Netflix movie type thing and therefore of no real value. We have sample lectures out. I have a string of links where people can effectively download lectures and see how that actually works. And they usually come back and go, wow, we didn't know you could actually deliver in this way and be interactive and be quite impacting. But there is a general perception. Remember that most of the international students' student fees are paid by parents. And those parents have grown up in a world where online didn't exist or was certainly not equivalent to face-to-face -to -face tuition. So when they hear that Little Harvinder is going to spend $50,000, which is 13 cows and a big patch of acreage on a study where all they do is put a headphone on and then sing along, that they don't find that acceptable. And we can appreciate that. It's probably not a good perception because we deliver much better value. Uh, and I get quite often the question of how much cheaper will online study be? And my answer is it's actually going to be more expensive if we priced it properly, but we're going to leave it at the same price because you do get a much more intense, albeit somewhat more self-directed study. I have never an interactive session with more than 18, 19 students. The average is about 8 to 12. That means that instead of being in a room with 100, you now have access to your professor in a small group for an hour that is much more equivalent than a one or two or three hour session in a big room where you rain wisdom down through the speakers. And that gives those students who click along well a much better education. So the perception in some countries just isn't quite up there. And on top of that, you have huge insecurity now in some countries. New Zealand competes with the UK, Canada, the US and Australia. And in the UK, you have, we hate all the foreigners Brexit. 
In Canada, you have a quota. That means you don't know if you can actually stay in the country after you finish your studies. In the U.S., you have a newest, the newest system is that even people who are already in the country with a study visa will get expelled if they do online study. It's a horrendously barbaric uh, power play. And in Australia, what doesn't bite and kill you while you study, you have virtually no way to get a work visa afterwards. So New Zealand really is the only country where we have a very straightforward pathway from study into the workplace. We have a three-year post-study work visa that students with a bachelor or master's degree can use to settle into the workplace, and many take that opportunity. And that means that even with a slight disruption on timing, maybe you can't come until early next year or even later in the year, you will still be able to get a world-class education. Massey is ranked 272nd in the world. So we certainly offer people at a very reasonable price compared to other countries that they get a good quality education and a chance to settle into the economy afterwards. And that probably will easily survive this temporary logistics setback of when can I travel and where will I quarantine and, and will they have good curry? We will ultimately solve those problems. And then I have a feeling by mid next year, we'll look back and we will just say, yes, there was something, but it's over. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favorite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui ki a koutou ko I hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really, really hope that whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very nourishing, very stimulating, very fascinating, very inspiring, very fulfilling and is illuminating for you more and more who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect as all life is, eternal as all life is, and here with precious gifts to share as all life is. So it's been a wonderful day for me, and I've been really enjoying, of course, now that we have moved through lockdown level four, level three, level two, and now level one, being able to reunite with all the places and the faces and the graces and the spaces that I really love, including being able to express one of my many love languages, which is, of course, gift giving. And I've loved today having time in my favourite space, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, with my dear, dear friend and amazing, very kind colleague and volunteer, Leslie, amazing wife of amazing Sam and of course their amazing granddaughter Lucy who came to visit me at Orokanui today and it's so wonderful because of course we're close to the public four days a week Leslie and I were able to have the whole eco sanctuary to ourselves and I just really felt that we were being given the most incredible gifts from the eco sanctuary today we saw so many beautiful beautiful endangered native animals so close to us and they obviously felt that we were giving them the opportunity to feel safe and come and interact with us in a really peaceful way so we had the beautiful takahe bene and waimari come and get really close to us some beautiful kaka tuis and bellbirds and the whole sanctuary itself just seemed to really 
welcome and appreciate our presence, which was so wonderful. And of course, this got me thinking about how we give and how we are present with each other and how really our presence is present enough. So when we are wanting to give, we're wanting to give, we are often motivated and conditioned towards gift giving, giving a physical present, giving something that we've made or something that we've bought. And of course, it's wonderful to be able to make gifts for people and really put our love and energy into them. And it's, of course, wonderful to be able to afford to buy gifts that someone will really love and value. But the best gifts of all and the most precious gift of all is our presence. And our presence is present enough. And so I've just loved today really connecting and being present with the people that I love, the people that I know, and people that I'm meeting and interacting with for the first time and appreciating their presence and allowing their presence to really nourish and inspire me, seeing every cell, every fibre of their being as a gift to me, for me to be able to reflect and experience the beauty of this world in another way. And something that I've been really enjoying talking with the lovely groups of children that I've been working with recently is of course that we all experience this world completely uniquely. We all bring a unique consciousness into this world, all life does. And so by really being ourselves, our true selves, and sharing with each other what we are experiencing, how we are experiencing it, we can all learn, we can all evolve faster and faster together, better and better together, and just make everything even better together, even more than we already are. So... Thank you for being born. Thank you for bringing your unique consciousness and magic and gifts and skills and presence into this world. We're so lucky to have you and I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. Is this pandemic and the disruption around it? I know, I know the pandemic's not in the textbook, but it, does it push people outside the, the textbooks in terms of what is global corporate strategy? Oh, absolutely. It creates different supply lines. It creates a suspicion that existing relationships may not survive. Uh, You would clearly imagine that American uh, buyers of Asia-made goods have huge problems now and continue to source because if you beat people up politically, then they aren't going to be your friends in trade. So we see a rearrangement of supply chains. And that is a huge concern for many firms because you don't develop supply chains and trusting relationships within a year or two. These are decade-long arrangements. Uh, VW had its first plant in China in 1972. Uh, GM put an auto plant into China in 1987. So these are huge, long-running relationships that involve thousands, tens of thousands of people, their education, the way you create quality that mimics your quality in other countries. This is something that when you destroy that virtually within a couple of months or in a couple of years through political browbeating has huge flow-on effects. Uh, We see consumer behavior that changes. It is absolutely clear that Chinese students and their parents are being told that the U.S. is no longer your first choice to go to study. And this is a $46 billion market for the U.S. So that has clearly an impact. And there is a immediate flow on effect on are you going to buy a Buick in China or are you going to buy a Mercedes? And 
the perception of relationships between countries connects into trade, trade relationships connects into supply chains, that connects into value produced, and that ultimately connects into what can you offer your consumer and will you still be in your foreign country competitive even if you now have to work with different input materials at different prices, at different qualities, with an unknown partner that you haven't dealt with for 30 years. All of that requires that there is a good rethink on whether what the firm had been doing historically is still fit for this purpose. And look, we we don't expect, and we don't expect that boards have the knowledge that catastrophic events incur all the time. Yes, sometimes you have somebody who flies a plane in your building, but that really doesn't happen every day. So the standard risk management that we expect from senior managers and boards doesn't really include something of this magnitude because it is fairly infrequent. And we are now testing abilities of individuals to pivot, uh, resilience of companies to work into a new ambiguity Will this new way work and when is the next wave coming and what will I then do? And we, of course, have to be mindful that most businesses in most countries are driven by investors and their investor money. And it's pretty clear to everyone that there is a huge hesitation to put money into industries that might still be affected or might be affected in the future without any sort of surety. So the fact that the stock market is at a new all-time high in the U.S. is quite asynchronous. It's hard to explain that because in most other countries it isn't and investors are holding back until they know where their money is safe. Now, New Zealand as an export country of food is looking pretty good because the world still has to eat. But most of our food that we export is not a commodity. It is value enhanced expensive food. Our honey is 18 times more expensive than the average honey sourced elsewhere. So if people lose their jobs overseas, then the discretionary spending goes down and they will probably have their sons and daughters eat normal honey for a couple of months of their tea rather than using New Zealand honey. So we have a built-in advantage that we are not dependent a lot on markets that are quite fickle because the world needs food and we export 97% of the food we make. But we are also dependent pretty much on everything that is manufactured for importing. We don't have any cars that aren't imported. Our cell phones are imported. Our cell phone towers are imported. And pretty much everything you have in your closet is made somewhere in Bangladesh and Indonesia and Malaysia. So you're ending up with a huge uncertainty of whether supply lines at the current prices will continue to exist and whether we ultimately will have to change how we consume. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller urban explorer and conversationalist, observing city life in lockdown. Well, hi there, bubble folk of Dunedin and beyond. How are you doing? I'm uh, having a great old day and it's really great to be able to check in with you once again and see how things are going. Um, Hopefully your life is ticking along in a way that you're feeling in control of and you're feeling good about. Um, Because even if we don't have an awful lot of control over things or we don't have control over much at all really, uh, we do have control over our decisions about how we feel. So as I've said in a number of these conversations with you, I like to stress the idea that we can take charge of some of those feelings about things and um, reframe things or, or think things through in a different way, get a new perspective in order to help us um, enjoy, enjoy what's on offer because 
Um, it doesn't really matter in some ways what's in front of us, what's on offer, what, what our lives consist of. While some things are better than others and while some situations are far superior to others, um, we still have a choice about how we can view that as a positive or a negative or maybe take some positive from something that might be negative. So I wanted to just share with you some of the little things that I have in my life that just fill me with joy because sometimes it's just about another perspective and um, uh, yeah hearing what maybe works for other people can sometimes trigger in your own life a new a new way of looking at things so I wake up every morning and I am ready to go I'm, I'm one of those you know some might say annoying people that wakes up happy <laughs> but I like to see that as a positive I think it's a great thing I can rein it in if people around me are not um, not quite as uh, ready to go first thing in the morning but um, I do wake up happy and part of that I think is that I go to bed feeling good and I go to bed thinking about what I'm going to do first thing in the morning and I have a few things that I do first thing in the morning that I just love that set me up for the whole day. So I'm excited before I even go to bed about my next my next day. <laughs> so this is a good setup. Um, so when I get up in the morning, the first thing I go and do is, um, well, of course, I greet my lounge and say, happy house, how's it going? Um, thank you for being such a wonderful house, which, you know, as I've think I've remarked in another conversation might seem a little weird but it is actually a great setup for the day and then I head out the door for a walk and this is such a good way to start the day now not everyone's into having a walk but definitely getting outside getting some fresh air going for a bike ride going for a run or even just dancing around your living room with the windows open anything that kind of maybe gets you moving gets your head going but Getting outside I find is just amazing. So going for a walk, I like to take photos, so getting some photos in, taking some sunrise shots just gets me loving life because I'm appreciating things, I'm taking notice of things and I tend to try and keep my phone off and I walk with the intention of seeing what's around me which really changes up your world too because I think we drive in a car or we ride in a bus or we... Um, walk to work with our mind on kind of what work is all about or you know we, we often don't take that time to notice what's around us so I love my walk for just really reconnecting me with what's around me and it doesn't matter that I'm walking in the middle of the city because even in a concrete jungle not that Dunedin's really too much of a concrete jungle but even in an urban environment with a you know concrete and built up areas not so much green it still gives you things to connect with people places locations details that you may not have noticed before and um, this is what makes us realize what's important in our lives too because we see these things and we we can feel joy about them. We can we can connect with them. We can remember them. Um, we have a we have a great way to start the day. So then it's usually coffee. Coffee usually is my next thing that I love. And these two things really get my day going. So having that walk and then a coffee, where I get to see people, I get to hang out in a cafe. I I smile at lots of people. I do some work. That just really sets me up. And it's not everyone's cup of tea, what I've just said, or cup of coffee, as we might say, in Lesel land. But finding some things like that that just trigger your day, 
might be the way to get get that sort of positive energy going for the day and you might find it really changes things up. Anyway, those are thoughts for today and hope you have a great one. Look forward to talking again soon. You talked about new ambiguity and I like that term. That suggests that we're not returning to a, a business as, as usual, that it is a perhaps a new environment in which uncertainty is it is more of a thing. Does that change how how we think on a global level? Well, every student who goes to the business school at Massey would learn that there is never a stable, that we constantly plan for a change, either imposed by competition, by changing consumer behavior, by newly available materials, by changes in government regulations, trade agreements, whatever else. So uh, I think anyone who approaches business on the basis that there is a business as usual is pretty soon going to find them outside of that business. So there is a reasonable standard constant change that we expect boards of management will handle but we most likely will not just through technology but also through different perceptions create a opportunity for many firms to operate differently it is now acceptable that you work from home and uh, i have a whole wardrobe that i can throw out and that is from the waist down because you don't need any nice pants anymore because all you need is a clip-on tie and a shirt and and everybody thinks that you dressed up for business and you can have your little furry bear slippers on and nobody cares. So working from home, which in the past had been a luxury to some extent in the high tech industry where people insisted that they can connect fast and therefore don't have to be anywhere, is now something that has extended itself to a number of other disciplines. That probably will change how people define jobs, administrative jobs or technical jobs that allow this connection in the future. But look, we still have uh, thousands of people that need to sweep the roads, that need to lay cables, that need to mow the lawn. They need to go out and do their thing. And for many people, this will be a fleeting memory in one or two or three years and life has gone back to normal. But there will be an increased number of people who have experimented but during the lockdown scenarios with ways to deliver value to their shareholders, to their customers, to their stakeholders in general, who will say, well, it worked really well in March and April and in May, so why can't it work in November? Do you think there might be a bit of a, a, a rethink or a repositioning? I think one of the things we learnt was how important some of the, um, the skills and workforces that we didn't value very highly turned out to be really important. We've called some of them essential services, but most of them are very poorly paid. Do you think that there might be a bit of a, a rethink, a repositioning along those lines? Well, in this country, most of the people that are essential services are paid on a government pay scale. Roughly, it is mandated what a teacher gets, is mandated what healthcare people get. So we don't really have a free market in most of those areas. But I agree with you that we probably have taken additional notice of the contributions that some people make that we in the past took for granted, and that might very well adjust to a different kind of climate. But we have many, many industries and businesses where technology could be used, but we're going to fall back on doing it the old-fashioned way because that's what we're set up to do. But I have a feeling that uh, borders will mean a little less as we cross them electronically in the future, that clearly we are now looking further away 
as, for instance, American companies are being disincentivized to look at China, they are now suddenly looking at Vietnam, at Malaysia, at African countries, where you know, we have one big computer factory now being contemplated for Rwanda. And I guarantee you that 99.9% of Americans couldn't find Rwanda on a map, even was spelled out Rwanda. So you probably will see that there will be a stimulus into companies and their planning that is driven by different opportunities that we have experienced during lockdown. And good firms, if they stumble across something that works, will then internalize it and will continue to use that as a technique to set themselves apart from those firms that don't. So competition will change. The core competence of firms will change. And it is pretty clear, I think, to everyone that firms that are flexible enough in order to change their business model relatively quickly, never quite knowing if it works, but at least having the willingness to explore changes will be the ones that come out ahead. What do you think we can learn from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the longer term, perhaps intergenerational issues, climate change, biodiversity, those sorts of questions? Well, I just came from brunch and I saw a whole group of people in the middle of Tauranga at a fairly busy intersection. They were all over 65 and I'm generous here with big placards that said, don't have the government tell you what you need to do. Vaccines are devilish. And, and so one of the things that I learned is that we have a lot more idiots in the world than we thought possibly before they were hiding and now they're coming out. There are a bunch of people that just don't understand the reality of pulling together and as a community fighting a approach that in this case is a virus, but it could very well have been something different, could have been global warming, could have been acid rain, whatever. And we still have a lot of people who just clearly aren't with the program. And I think we need to rethink this concept of involving everyone in every decision that we make, because if we do that, and if we had done that before, we would not have eradicated TB, we would not have eradicated the pestilence and the measles, and we would still be in a backward situation. So I think feeling comfortable to delegate some key priorities and decision makings to people you believe have the ability to do it is probably a good thing. Clearly, you can't have a committee consensus on what should a best mask look like because we'd never get one. At some point, you just say, this is it. It's going to cost you a buck and it will be blue and white and you will wear it this way and let's move on to the next problem. So I think we've wasted in many countries, and the U.S. is a great example today, a lot of democratic firepower where people are abusing democracy and assume that democracy means that everybody has a right to trample over everyone else. And that I find troubling. We had 62,000 new cases in the U.S. today. Uh, That's mainly Texas and California, states that are wealthy, states that have a huge infrastructure, states that have good schooling, where you would assume that many people understand uh, when somebody tells you what a pandemic and a virus is, how that works. And people are so distrustful of the government. They are so fiercely defending their rights that They'd rather carry an open assault rifle trying to shoot that virus than to wear a mask. And I find those kinds of distractions quite unhelpful. And I think that one of the things we'll learn is that maybe a more, I wouldn't say China-like, but a more streamlined decision-making where we go faster, harder, and more focused in order to solve a problem might well be the way to go. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Burton Cummins' Albert Flasher. 
Of all of the changes we've seen in the last few months, what do you think is going to stick? And what do you hope will stick? Having the freedom to experiment with different ways of doing what you do is a good thing. And I hope that that sticks. Having a rallying point of people in communities or countries coming together and supporting each other and not doing it like Sweden is probably something that's a good thing. And I hope that that sticks. And having the disruptive effect in businesses to being forced to look more closely at what have we done in the past and was this really the best way to do it, I hope that that sticks. I'm always concerned when firms say we have a strategy day, March 31st, every two years. I'm always wondering what happens the two years in between. I mean, who gives them a right to just go to sleep for two years before 
they discuss again what they do different. And I think if we had a new strategy day every day, uh, we obviously wouldn't get anything done, but we'd be very squirrely. So I think what will stick is probably a greater sense of agility, maybe some irreverence that we are no longer taking what we did in the past for granted. And we clearly had the ability in the past to connect by video. We had the ability to work from home, but there was no compelling reason to do so. And I think it's quite good to see that due to that compelling reason of a lockdown, people now created opportunities for long available technology that really isn't that exciting. I mean, going on a Zoom call isn't exactly like flying to Mars or developing a submarine, but it is something that seemed for people to be quite novel and it clearly has not sunk the boat. It has many many companies more effective and efficient, and I think it will stay. New Zealand seems to have gotten through this so far at least better than most other places. What do you put that down to? I'm not sure that's a correct statement. I think we are not yet seeing the tale of a drama story where businesses that through government intervention and possibly having lived off earnings from the past or possibly have put in fresh money have been able to survive. I think there will still be a fairly appreciable number of businesses that have not yet realized how much consumer behavior the world around them has changed. And I'm not sure that there will not be a large number of failures still. And the problem with companies that go under is never uh, the leaders. They either have enough money to live for a while or they can find another job. It is usually the workers that have a hard time repositioning themselves, either for lack of skill or for lack of opportunity. And in New Zealand, we focus on the three, four, five towns, but most of New Zealand life happens in the provinces. And how many different companies do you have in Tokoroa that you can pick? How many companies do you have in Mangakino that you can pick? And what do you do in, in very small places in Apodiki? How many job choices do you have if the main AFCO plan goes out of business? What are you going to do? And we are not yet anywhere close to having seen the fallout after the government salary support scheme runs out, companies reposition. There is still money in the market from previous heydays of earnings that's being used up. And at some point, if there is no fresh money coming in, then we will be in trouble. And you could argue that, yes, hotels are doing quite good right now because they have 100% occupancy rate while they're being used for quarantine. But that is an artificial time-saving mechanism. At some point, quarantine will go away. And the question is, will the international bookings then pick up and will we allow people to come in from countries that are still raging with an active infection increase. So there are so many variables still that the only people that really know it's going to stay good are the farmers because the cows have decided they're still going to give milk tomorrow. And that's how we're going to continue on. So some questions to end the show with. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Being able to create a completely new teaching style and program that appeals to uh, very low business experience people and turns them into nearly instant leaders. That was usually successful, is usually successful. It's the, um, it's the only one-year MBA that we have in New Zealand, and it is there to take people with some but not much work experience directly into leadership. And we conceived that in record time. We trialed that in record time, and it is a runaway success. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. What's your superpower? Oh, I don't have any superpower. Um, I like to see people become much better than me. 
and I like people to go faster than I did at their age and to do many more things that I wasn't able to do. And there are many people today who have untapped reserves in their tank and in their batteries who maybe we haven't quite shot out of the cannon loud enough and fast enough early on. And doing that even a little later is still a good thing. So we need to get people out of this country to see what the world is about. We are two small islands next to 50 million penguins. And even the next country we have that's further away than the 50 million penguins only has 26 million people in Australia. That is barely Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Guangzhou as one three city town together. So we are terribly isolated. And I think people who want to tank up on superpower for the future need to tank that up overseas. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Oh, no, no, I'm far too old for that. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, I make people's lives different. And I can see that. They stick with me for many, many years. They continue on to converse, and you touch them for a while. All students are transient relationships, right? We love them when they come, but we love them more when they leave because they go to better places. And when they stay in business and connect with you and tell you great things they've done, then that is a good thing, and you continue that. So what challenge are you looking forward to in the next couple of years? I am not convinced that education, especially for business, must happen in a university building in a certain parking lot at a certain town. Uh, We only have students come to us because we have our building where we have it. And I wonder if there is a way that we can do a lot more in workplace, in community education. And I'm not talking about learning how to cook and make a good omelet and be a nurse, but uh, having high-end leadership skills, why can't we have somebody who is in a firm use the firm as a school, use people, stakeholders, employees, managers as people that they either teach or learn from? And I'm not convinced that we are having an efficient model, but if you really want to know what I'm looking forward to is hologram. I want to be all over the world popping up with a hologram at a certain time. And so while I stand here in Tauranga doing my thing, I am absolutely lifelike and scarily real in Bangalore and in Phnom Penh and in Rome and all at the same time. That would be hot. And you could add some superpowers. Absolutely. Yeah, avocados. (laughs) Do you have any advice for our listeners? I would be a lot more fearless. I see a lot of people who hold themselves back. Uh, Many people don't have many older friends around that are not family and friends. They must love you, but people they can talk to that can mentor you, that can help you. So you need a network of older, wiser, more successful people. And everyone knows people that are wiser and more successful. But once you have enough ammunition, knowledge, then go out and do something with it. It makes absolutely no sense. And I see this in Maoridom in New Zealand quite a lot. We have probably right now the best educated Maori middle class we ever have. More masters, more PhDs than ever before. But when it comes to decision-making in a Maori trust, when it comes to speaking at the Marae, and I'm respectful to the culture, but we have very educated, wise, competent people who are being marginalized based on age, based on gender, based on whatever the the cultural afflictions are. And I think that not being held back and doing what you can do, even if it includes a failure here and there, is probably the best way to learn. I tell people that if you come to the point that you make 70% of the time the right decision, then you need to make 100% more decisions because you know that on average you will get 
get it right. And you can't constantly stay back and wait for somebody else to tell you what to do. Thank you very much for that. Moira. Um, I'm very fortunate to have um, access to ENDS uh, <laughs> on so many levels for so much help over the years. And ENDS, you are an absolute superhero, really. And I appreciate you so much. And I've seen the work you've done helping so many other people. Thank you for what you do. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. I hope you have all a wonderful weekend and a great life ahead. Best wishes. Thank you. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and Jens Mueller in Tauranga. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.